This is weird. I'm talking to myself and I haven't done that in a while, but I'm like talking to you. So like, am I alone? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Wed Talk. I am your host, Eric Smarr, and I am here to take you on a wild ride of education today because in my time here in self-isolation and quarantine, I thought that it would be fun to explore some topics uh, that uh, has always uh, plagued me. <laughs> like, why do brides carry flowers down the aisle. And so I thought it would be very interesting to do an episode on the history of the bouquet. And then what's often tied with a bouquet at a wedding is the bouquet toss. So the two questions or the main question I'm discussing topic, oh my gosh, can't get my words straight, is the history of the bouquet and why the bouquet toss. I did a very, very big deep dive on this topic because I, it was just intriguing. It was a lot of information that I had no idea. A lot of it's uh, factual, a lot of it's presumed, a lot of it's been questioned or discredited, but I'm just going to share all the things that I found and we will go through it together. I'm going to quote my sources at the top of the episode, just that way, make sure credit is given or credit is due. Uh, first is Wikipedia, because where else do you start finding information or get a quick answer aside from Wikipedia? Uh, Love to Know, Southern Living, Huffington Post, Bustle, Snopes, Reader's Digest, and Our Everyday Life. So, uh, and in my search, uh, kind of bouquet stems from the idea of an arrangement and like an arrangement of flowers because that was what was first. So before people started just carrying around arrangements, they were like placed in vases, vases, vase, 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 vase. What do you say? I know it's a big dilemma on friends, uh, but what do you say? Anyway, so history of arrangements. So flower arrangement uh, that was used for decor for your home or buildings has a very, 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 very long history in the world. The oldest evidence of formal arranging of bouquets in vases, vases, vases. I think I say vases, but you can vase. Anyway, I digress. Come from ancient Egypt, um, where they actually have depictions of flower arrangements that date to the Old Kingdom, which, I mean, we all know what the Old Kingdom is, but just in case you out there don't know, it's about 2500 BCE. Uh, the sacred lotus was often used and depicted, um, along with a lot of herbs, palms, irises, anemones, which is one of my favorite flowers, and narcissus. In other ancient cultures, ink uh, practices still survive today. For example, uh, Ikebana, which I hope I pronounced that correctly, is the art of flower arranging that comes from Japan. It is also known as kado, which translates to the way of flowers. Um, the tradition dates back to the 7th century when floral offerings were made at altars. Later, they were placed in the tokonoma, or an alcove of a home, so like traditional decor. 
Um, Ikebana reached its first zenith in the 16th century under the influence of Buddhist tea masters and has also grown over the centuries with about a thousand different schools of thought in Japan and abroad. Kado is counted as one of these three classical Japanese art art of refinement, um, along with Kodo, which is the way of fragrance, uh, for incense appreciation, and Sado, the way of tea, for tea and tea ceremonies. The oldest known book that exists on flower arrangement is Japanese, and it dates back to 1445. And I'm going to butcher this, but Kao Rai no Kadensho is the name of the uh, piece in which it is documented. Um, simplicity and linear form are the core features of Ikebana, which has a great deal of influence over a lot of Western flower arranging um, starting from the 19th century. Flower arranging, arranging as an art form, was brought to Japan by Buddhist monks who learned it while in China. So it goes all the way to China. Uh, in ancient China, flower arranging developed into a highly refined art form based on the principle that life is sacred, including the life of plants, therefore, cut flowers were used sparingly in carefully planned arrangements. Flowers were a traditional ritual offering among Buddhists, however, and remain so to this day. I just think it's so, 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 so interesting that it was born, or at least it seems like the art of flower arranging was born out of the want and desire to, like, have flowers on display in your home or in places where it was like hard to like just grow a specific flower and but because it was held in such high esteem and such like great you know presence of earth and mother and world that they didn't want to chop them down or cut a whole bunch of them so they were very very intentional and very very um particular about making sure that they were arranged in a great and beautiful way so as to not cut too many from the world but also um, be able to beautify their homes. Uh, now let's jump over to Europe. Um, it, flower arranging became a formal art form, and it was first documented by the Dutch, um, who ended up, if you have been to many museums, or any museums, or tons of paintings, or seen them online, um, know that they painted a lot of arrangements of flowers. Uh, there's there's one that's super notable that uh, showed up on the Wikipedia page of a flower uh, arrangement in a window, kind of framed in the window with like this beautiful, you know, mountainside, countryside in the background. Shocking that the name of this piece that I'm describing is called Bouquet in an Arched Window. <laughs> um, and the artist was Ambrosius Bochard. Bochard? Bochard. Ambrosius Burchard. Ambrosius the Elder is often what he was also referred to as. And so that was kind of a statement of, of aristocracy back then, because of course, number one, you needed to have extra money to have beautifully arranged flowers, but then also have somebody come into your house and paint it. So kind of got to had a little bit of money to make that happen. So let's fast forward from uh, kind of jumping from the China Japan um, up to a little bit more recent and by more recent I mean 800 to 500 BC so we had the start of it earliest documented in Egypt in 2500 I know we jumped and said that there wasn't anything written um, of it until 1445 in Japan but kind of 
kind of see the the growth of wedding flowers being used. So that was arrangements. Now we're going into wedding flowers. So there's a lot of cultural evidence of floral use in weddings during earliest recorded historical periods of Egypt, Greece, and Rome. In ancient Egyptian, Grecian, and Roman weddings, it was like a rite of passage to ensure the continuance of your dynasty, your family, your bloodline. It was weddings were to cement a trade alliance and to also <laughs> like create more hands to work in the family. So essentially like grow and birth your labor force to do your trade, whether you were at a farm or you were making, you know, welding products, whatever that like you got married so that way you had your labor force, which is crazy. Um, brides carried back then for weddings um, sheaths of wheat, um, a statement of and supplication for fertility. Um, they were hand-tied stalks, and they were sometimes embellished with other grains, branches of fruiting or nut trees, um, anything to signal abundance and foretell happiness and good fortune and lots of children, aka lots of labor. Um, <laughs> brides also sometimes wore uh, capelets of indigenous flowers, uh, and both brides and grooms may have even worn circlets or wreaths of greenery. The crowd also, the crowd, <laughs> those in attendance, the family, the friends, scattered flower petals before the happy couple to crush under their feet as they processed through the streets, leading them to their new home. So in Greece, uh, garlands and crowns were used a lot um, that included olive branches and herbs to honor the goddess Hera. And scented white flowers, such as orange blossoms, were incorporated. Strands of ivy symbolized the unbreakable bond of marriage, The and the white blossoms stood for sweetness and happiness. And I mean... If anything, ivy symbolizing unbreakable bond, like ivy just grows and grows and gets in bricks and it ingrains. So it's actually kind of interesting, sweet. It just like sinks down to the core. It gets rooted, it gets planted, and it sprawls and just continues to grow. So that's actually a really interesting thing that maybe I would love to see a little bit more happen in bouquets. Um, in Rome, uh, Roman couples followed a similar custom to Greek wedding flowers, um, where they weaved greenery and blooms into garlands and crowns scented with orange blossoms again, but they also used roses, thyme, basil, and marjoram to ward off evil, they, to honor the gods, and to invoke fertility, therefore enticing good luck for their labor force. <laughs> <laughs> it just seemed like they were all about uh, fertility and uh, growing the family, essentially growing their workforce. Um, in Egypt, um, ancient Egyptians, uh, they clustered in the fertile lands along the Nile. They collected lots of flowers in their travels, and they really, really loved the lotus flower. Uh, the symbolic lotus appears widely in Egyptian art, like I mentioned back in 2500 BCE, um, and may have just may have been used as a wedding decoration. A papyrus poem uh, dating from the Ramesside period, circa 1100 BCE, um, references love and the lotus flower. And I will read it to you, obviously, in a uh, translation. The papyrus is the Turin papyrus, and it's titled, Let My Love Love Me Best. <clears throat> Let my love love me best, and I shall ordain her hands full of lotus blossoms and flowers, full of buds and perfumes, strong ale, and beer of every brewable kind. Then she'll give me her love, a day to remember. Make me drink down this day to its last shadow.
<laughs> um, uh, marriages were simple civil agreements then, it seems like, and archaeological discoveries show that a lot of Egyptian brides carried thyme and garlic um, as a shield against evil spirits. So uh, this next section um, kind of fast forwards a little bit away from Egypt, and then we'll kind of jump into the Middle Ages um, and talking about Europe this kind of you'll 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 see the connection so in uh these in a lot of scenarios bouquets were repugnant not necessarily due to strong smelling florals but rather they were created using highly pungent herbs think spices like dill um, and quite possibly lots of garlic and chives the theory here is twofold on the one hand traditional folklore suggested the strong smells would drive away evil spirits and bad luck on the other hand, it's possible the practice either emerged or evolved during the times of the plague, and during a time that people commonly clutched herbs over their noses and mouths in attempt to survive, as garlic and dill both have natural and medicinal properties. Um, the dill reappeared at the wedding feast, after being in the bride's bouquet, to get the newlyweds ready to consummate their love that night. Um, yes, even our ancestors knew about the wonders of aphrodisiac foods. Okay, so mentioned a little bit about the plague. So this next part kind of coming up bridges the 5th to the 15th centuries with flowers carried and wedding flowers, which I know is a, a wide window, but here we go. So in the Middle Ages, uh, fragrant herbs and abundant grains like garlic and sheaves of wheat were symbolic wedding flora along with flower garlands worn by both of the couple. During the Middle Ages and Elizabethan times, uh, regular bathing and laundry were indulgences reserved for the privileged and difficult for many commoners, sometimes near impossible or so very infrequent um, for the peasant people who maybe even owned like one nice set of clothes. So flowers and scented herbs could serve as more than decor for fragrant brides and grooms. A clutch of garlic stems or roses and fresh rosemary could mask any personal pungency with evocative scents from the garden and the kitchen. So just cover up, just just wear some flowers, which I mean, kind of <laughs> some people today use with either deodorant or perfumes or cologne made up of all these lovely scents, but we, did, we don't necessarily go and grab them and carry them on us. We have them in lovely mist and spray form or... Uh, whatever, roll-ons that exist that keep us smelling nice. So uh, this is, you'll, um, you'll get it. <laughs> so back in the, that, the 15th century, um, brides apparently had a very distinctive owner, as in they smelled. So uh, June was the most popular time of the year for weddings. You know, we always hear like a June wedding or a June bride, um, because it was said that people took their annual full bath in May. They only got one, um, and we thought our struggles were real right now. Um, and women were apparently in the pecking order the last or second to last to take a bath. Um, a household would fill a big tub full of hot water and would take the baths in this order. The man of the house would get the hottest, freshest, cleanest water, followed by the other male members of the household, followed by the women, and then lastly, the bebe. And yeah, so 
is rumored that this is where the expression don't throw the baby out with the bathwater originated because by the time that you got to the bay at the end, you know, water was pretty dirty. So <laughs> when you're dumping out the water, don't throw out the baby. <laughs> oh, which is kind of tragic that you would think the baby would be by themselves. You wouldn't notice it, but is it that dark and they're not above the water? I don't know. I don't know. Um, so this is the theory behind, quote, June weddings and why that people were still would relatively still smell pretty good about a month later. Um, pres- uh, presumably, especially the men folk would uh, get the hottest, cleanest portion of the water. Um, but, you know, so they should be smelling fresh themselves. They necessarily wouldn't need to have the most protection. And then the women kind of second after all the men. So maybe they would smell a little bit. Um, so as an extra precaution for any of the potential additional stank that was created over the past month, um, you know, brides began to carry fragrant bouquets to mask their odor. Uh, flowers and scented herbs would be served more as more than decor for brides and grooms. So again, going back to garlic stems, roses, rosemary, um, would all be super, super great, helpful things. But like I said, a lot of this has been contradicted. So, um, this theory about June weddings and the once a year bath thing that was taken from a, uh, a document life in the 15th century, was discredited by Snopes um, with them saying that although the modern practice of full immersion bathing was a long way off from the 1500s, um, among other reasons, because filling a large vest, filling a vessel large enough to hold a person with heated water was super impractical back then, given the effort required to collect fresh water and then fuel it for heating. People did still bathe in a sense of attempting to clean themselves as best as they could with the resources at hand, but not in the sense of, you know, modern baths or showers as we kind of think and know and see them today. So for that document to be credited to life, quote, in the 15th century, that in the 1500s, it just wasn't a thing for it to happen. So the idea of a June wedding and the reason why they carried it is because they only took this one great bath a year. I mean, maybe, you know, a little bit after that, I don't know. But at the same time, it just seems kind of ridiculous that you would only smell decent because I think of, you know, shows like, I mean, I I say Survivor, which I'm a huge Survivor fan um, and super excited about the season and excited for the season finale next week. (laughs) But uh, I mean, you see them, they'll go into the ocean and brush off. And so like, and take baths in the the water. And maybe you don't necessarily smell the freshest, but you probably don't smell terrible. And if like everybody else smells the same, that because you're all poor or, you know, it's, I think... I think it's overrated, this story, (laughs) Uh, that this just seems very impractical that, you know, I don't think that's the reason why for a June wedding um, became a thing. I think it's just, you know, summer, you know, all the blooms are out, it's greenery, it's nice and beautiful weather that people want to just go out and celebrate. This is my theory. So let us jump up to the Elizabethan era, aka the 16th through 17th centuries. So in the Elizabethan and Tudor era, wedding flowers were playful and more abundant because people are just getting through it. This is also kind of that time, you know, people have been painting it, people seeing arrangements of people wanting to get more decor with it. 
Uh, <laughs> that's a word I just made up, but you're welcome. So posies, nosegays, sachets, they were all added to um, the medieval wedding flora. Um, and also the kissing knot was introduced. So uh, bridal garlands and flower swag were already kind of major. Like I said, some people were already you know, wearing them as personal decor, but then it kind of grew a little bit more. So decorative posies were kind to delicate noses. Um, it helped propel the new alliances into intimacy and abundant progeny. An Elizabethan bride might wear a fragrant garland and her guests would receive small scented bouquets as gifts. Now that's something to discuss. Like everybody gets a flower instead of there being like huge arrangements or something. Bride's like, here's a gift, favor, your own little mini bouquet. Everybody carries one. It's nice, it's fun, it's fragrant. I'd love that idea. That's fun. So I mentioned kissing knots. Before I did this research, I had no idea what a kissing knot was. So here is what it is. <laughs> um, a quaint custom from the Tudor period, so kind of bridging this, this time period, 1485 to 1603, um, was a feature uh, of wedding receptions called the kissing knot. This is a round ball of blossoms uh, that sometimes had a little bit of greenery in it that was suspended over the bride and groom section of the head table. Kissing knots hold the same mystique and custom as sprigs of mistletoe around the holidays tacked over doorways. The lucky couple who comes together under them is entitled to a kiss, hence why one would put one over the bride and groom at the head table. So in the case of the wedding knot, the flowers were a reminder of romance and promise of a long and faithful marriage, aka lots of kissing. <laughs> because that is what makes a faithful and long marriage, is lots of forced uh, symbolic kissing. Uh, but I think it would be so weird or random that you'd be timing yourself to like go up to talk to the bride and groom or see one of their guests kind of like back back during that time, you know, looking for a wedding date or meeting somebody at a wedding. You'd kind of be like, oh, I want to go up and say something to the bride and groom, congratulate them or whatever. But I don't some like weirdo rando coming up. I want somebody who I've been kind of like, I eye during the ceremony maybe to uh, have that little moment. So if you were entitled to get a kiss that like you would make sure you timed your approach up to visit the bride and groom when a beautiful person that you were wanting to know more about or give a little moment with would go up there as well. So you might, might want to fight or position your way to be close to the head table to be able to ready to spring up and spring into action and get that kiss. <laughs> I could just imagine it. Uh, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm kind of glad we don't have that, but I think it also would be a little like cute tradition, maybe to put it like a photo booth, maybe. Or I mean, still do it above the head table. And maybe that, that practice comes into play and people like vie to kiss each other in front of the bride and groom. And every time they do, the bride and groom have to kiss. I don't know. That could be fun. Anyway, uh, let's jump a little bit more into the Victorian era, which is where a lot of um, modern kind of ideas, traditions and such kind of spring from. So the Victorian era um, uh, spanned from her the popular monarch, Queen Victoria from 1837 to 1901. Uh, it was a lot about symbolism. Um, and so there's a lot of symbolic flowers, um, posy bouquets and blossom crowns that brides wore and became very trendy. So Queen Victoria's flower crown, um, people were much taken with the language of flowers in Queen Victoria's day. 
lavish, you know, tomes were featured illustrations of every kind of blossom and various meanings that were attached to it. Um, Victoria paid a lot of attention to detail um, and a lot of staging, especially with flower symbolism. So she heaped her ceremony with a lot of cut and blooming flowers uh, and wore a crown of orange blossoms, a symbol of chastity. Um, in her hair, sparking a craze for a lot of bridal flower crowns. And, I mean, uh, <laughs> could I leave a lot maybe unsaid here about flower crowns in places like Coachella and, <laughs> uh, and that, but I don't, I don't necessarily think um, that meaning maybe pertains to a lot of people that wear it today. Um, moving on. Uh, tussie mussies and posies. Uh, Queen Victoria was a fan of the tussie mussie, which is the English, uh, old English name for a small posy or nosegay style bouquet. Um, tussie mussies were very popular then and um, have taken, you know, twists and turns over the years um, as an option. And even today, um, posies are often something that mothers of the bride might even carry as well down the aisle uh, for the ceremony. So Queen Victoria's bouquet. The Queen's bouquet was a mass of scented symbols. Uh, one flower she carried was a myrtle. Um, it's a myrtle's a fragrant plant evoking the love goddess Aphrodite. Um, the delicate creamy white blossoms that were also part of her bouquet were associated with beauty, fidelity, passion, Im immortality, and true love. So today, this practice is still used by some brides when they're choosing their bouquets. Um, so like, for example, if you want to express adoration, consider a white camellia. Want a happy marriage? Peony is your pick. Want to convey to your partner that you are dazzled by their charms? You can't go wrong with a ranunculus. <laughs> so this is a great reason that I would like to believe, you know, for bridal bouquets is meaning and symbolism, less, you know, covering up smells um, or less thinking about supplying your labor force for your trade, for your family, <laughs> to help with fertility. I think I like the idea of it being much, much, much more symbolic and just beautiful and smells good just because it smells good. Just like we buy candles just because they smell good. We're not trying to cover up the smell. I mean, some people like candles because they're going up for smell in the bathroom. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I just, I like that reasoning for why bride or bouquets exist in general. Then, uh, moving on to the Biedermeier bouquet. So the Biedermeier bouquet is more compact. It was first seen in Switzerland and Germany in the late 1800s, um, and it is a formal design of concentric circles of flowers with a short wrapped stem. So it's very symmetrical, very geometric, much more modern, and may account for a lot of what is seen at you know weddings over the last you know some century, half a century. Um, that you see like the nice, tight, compact, you know, rounded ball of flowers. That look of a bouquet kind of is the Biedermeier bouquet. So moving on to the modern era in 20th century and on. So by the 20th century, flowers were very in style for weddings, um, even modest ceremonies with low budgets called for a bride to have a bouquet. Um, different, you know, changing fortunes and fashions sent bouquet styles in and out of favor. Like I said, some became popular, some not. They fade in, they fade out. Um, a full-on traditional wedding meant flowers, uh, blooming bowers, potted trees for the service and reception, bouquets for the whole female bridal party, and boutonnieres for the males. 
since I brought it up and we're talking flowers and I don't think there's enough information for its own episode, <laughs> I will touch on boutonnieres for now, which a quick and brief history of the boutonniere. Boutonniere means buttonhole in French. Uh, the history of the boutonniere dates back to the 16th century. Initially, the purpose of wearing a boutonniere was to ward off bad luck or evil. Surprise, surprise, because apparently that's everybody thought symbolism. This is going to save me. It's going to protect me. I'm Gucci. I'm good. Um, The boutonniere was the male equivalent of the bridal bouquet, having the same significance and purpose of protection against odor and diseases. Again, I think it's a lot less odor, maybe more protection, good luck, fertility, um, long true life happiness, etc. It is widely believed that that putting a flower in the buttonhole um, began as a way of identifying oneself and to one's comrades on the battlefield. So different flowers supposedly indicated different allegiances, and this was really important in the many civil wars in England when both sides would have sounded and looked quite similar. So a very, like, identifiable thing. In the 18th century, um, male... Uh, fashion and wardrobe changed significantly. Fashionable wear became acceptable in almost all parts of Europe, and the ensemble of an English gentleman, so a coat and breeches and boots, was adopted by the French too. Uh, In this period, large flowers began to be worn in the top buttonhole of frock coats. It soon became fashionable to leave the top buttons of the coat unfastened, um, falling back and forming a lapel on which men put in and fastened boutonnieres, a.k.a flower stems into said buttonhole. 19th century um, brought with it the enthusiasm for nature, specifically in the romantic movement, um, and the boutonniere became very fashionable accessory um, as a splash of color for a more like muted outfit. So toward the end of the 19th century, the boutonniere was largely accepted as the mark of a man who was carefully uh, well-dressed. The choice of a fresh boutonniere was as important as choosing a well a polished pair of shoes. So it was very, very outfit complete um, The flower on the lapel was on the list of men's accessories of the day, which also included things like watch chains, watch chains, cigar cases, and jeweled pins. 20th century. The idea of wearing a flower on the lapel survived through world, the, both world wars as a sign of remembering la belle époque. Um, movies of the first decades of the 20th century portrayed a style in which the boutonniere was omnipresent as a part of elegance and masculinity. Cary Grant, Clark Gable, both became masculine prototypes, and they often wore with their, you know, nice put-together black suits a nice, discreet little boutonniere. Nowadays, boutonnieres are mainly part of the male wedding costume. Um, They often match the style of the bridal flowers. Um, The groom can choose from a large variety of boutonniere types, from classic to bold. Um, The groom and groomsmen and father the bride, officiant, fathers, whoever, um, all typically can, would, should wear a a boutonniere. Um, It just adds a little bit of elegance and completes the the full look. Um, And yeah, so that's boutonnieres. Back to bouquets. So the early 1900 bouquets. Now we're going to go into like the styles. So they came in a lot of different varieties. Cascades. So these were all the rage in the 1910s and 20s. Um, They expanded from that traditional popularized Victorian posy size, um, often with trailing ribbons and vines, um, so that they were super immense and impressive. 
Um, however, the idea and concept of lavish bouquets slipped away uh, from popularity during the World Wars when brides began to be married in suits um, and fairy tale weddings became less common and just more, I would say, lackluster, quick found the love, he's off to war, not so much of a, of a fuss and an affair and a to-do, so it just became much, much more simple. Um, a sheaf was also popular. The sheaf, as I mentioned way back, um, is a collection of blossoms with the full stems, like the sheaths of wheat. Um, first fashionable in the early 1900s, you know, with it just being blooms, um, and constructed to be cradled along one bent arm. Um, a popular example of this, uh, if you remember from uh, the episode of Friends, um, the one with the lesbian wedding, where Carol and Susan both had sheath bouquets and they cradled in their one arm a sheath of tulips. Um, and then I thought about it again and both Rachel and Phoebe carried sheaths for, as bridesmaids for Monica's wedding. So blammo sheaf, you're welcome. Um, the other um, popular style is composite, um, and it appeared uh, in the early 20th century. It's a single giant bloom constructed by hand from individual flower petals to resemble one sensational oversized fleur. And then let's bring it up to the mid 20th century. So several changes took place after World War II. Um, for ceremony and reception decorations, um, English royals popularized the abundance and decoration of both the ceremony and reception. Uh, in 1947, Princess Elizabeth married Philip Mountbatten. They had seasonal florals and urns at the ceremony in Westminster Abbey and tables with floral centerpieces for the dinner at Buckingham Palace. So I know royal weddings always, always, always have been a big influence on all weddings and traditions all across the board, which is why, you know, it seems like a lot of wedding tradition with flowers and dress, which will be a, its own ep uh, separate episode, date back to Queen Victoria and kind of it trickling down through um, society from there. Uh, so it seemed like in the mid 20th century that uh, with the wedding of Elizabeth and Philip that that seemed like a marker for lots of centerpieces being present, lots of ceremony, decor, set up, altar, big moment. Another thing was the Bible spray, which I, I think has all seemed to be pretty illuminated as far as I'm aware of as a planner. But the Bible spray was um, American actress Grace Kelly's choice when she married the King of Monaco in 1956. Uh, a simple white prayer book or slim Bible was just embellished with a uh, spray or small grouping of flowers. And so she had that as extra decor at her wedding. So later, later 20th century and beyond. So the late 20th century and uh, early 21st century brought back popular bouquet trends from history. So revisiting the Cascade bouquet could give you... So many opportunities to guess where this comes from. Any guesses? Anybody? <laughs> so in the 1980s, the teardrop shape uh, or waterfall shaped cascade bouquet were boosted to new heights by the Cinderella perfection of Diana Spencer's televised wedding to Prince Charles. So it was very, very, very prominent. Whole world got to see Princess Diana's wedding. 
and see the bouquet that she was carrying. Uh, so this is why the cascade sometimes is often referenced as a princess style. Um, because the princess carried it. They also continued a lot of Victorian trends. Um, so both Kate Middleton and Meghan Markle carried sprigs of myrtle in their bouquets, just like uh, Queen Victoria did. And actually, a sprig of myrtle has been in every single um, royal wedding or royal bride's bouquet since. But the sprig of myrtle doesn't come from just any old bush in Great Britain or the world. It, fun fact, comes from the flowering of the myrtle straight from Queen Victoria's own 170-year-old garden. The myrtle plant was given to her in the 1800s by the grandmother of her husband, Prince Albert. Another commonality that each bouquet shares is that they're all only usually filled with white flowers, um, and they're also, post-wedding, left in the same spot. So, uh, started by Queen Elizabeth I, currently it's Queen Elizabeth II, but Queen Elizabeth I, um, each bride has left her flowers at the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior in Westminster Abbey, ever since. And that is the history of the bouquet. You're welcome. But I just thought, you know, very interesting, uh, you know, trend, trajectory, um, style choices, reasonings why uh, they all exist. And and I think, you know, I'd, I'd love for it to not necessarily be tied to the odor situation. <laughs> and it seems like that was kind of disproved, but it seems you know, the earliest art form of flower arrangement dates to wanting to be, you know, very intentional with how things are arranged um, out of abundance of preservation for uh, nature and for for flowers. And uh, and so I think it's, it's very interesting and cool that the art form that, you know, bridal bouquets has come today that, you know, it is symbolism, it is just incorporating color, it's just what you like, what you don't, how you want to, you know, outfit yourself with, um, with you know decor for the day to to match so why would you throw something so beautiful <laughs> is my next question so where did the history of bouquet tossing come from and i thought this was maybe the most relevant thing that but it was also so cool so get ready the earliest tossing reference that i could find was the golden apple of discord which according to greek mythology my high school mythology teacher be very proud um is the goddess um eris inscribed on the apple t kalisti which in greek translates to for the fair or to the most beautiful before tossing it she tossed it at, in the midst of the Feast of the Gods at the wedding of Peleus and Thetis um, as a prize of beauty, thus sparking a vanity-fueled dispute among Hera, who was the goddess of women, marriage, family, and childbirth, and the sister-wife to Zeus, Athena, the goddess of war, strategy, wisdom, daughter of Zeus, and Aphrodite, goddess of sexual love and beauty. That eventually led to the Trojan War, because if they were all fighting over it and they're wanting to know who is the most prettiest, and then, you know, the you know story of the Iliad and the Odyssey and Battle of Troy, um, all over Helen of Troy, and was she the prettiest one around? Uh, so kind of interesting how, like, it, it all stems back to the Greeks. So that's also where the term Apple of Discord um comes from because it is used to signify the core kernel or crux of an argument or a small matter small matter that could have led to a bigger dispute um which like 
small matter of who gets the apple, who gets the late claim of being the prettiest, led to this war that killed tons of people. That was fictional, but anyway. <laughs> or maybe not mythology, you know, who knows. But blame it on the Greeks to uh, be the source of this story. So, now I don't know about the time frame of this next little bit of information, but all of the sources kept saying, quote, in ancient times. Um, a lot of them specifically referred to England, per se, but in general, the summary was a bride was considered to be lucky. That apparently she was so fortuitous to be married and so lucky that, you know, it was so rare apparently to get married, but apparently everybody was knowing it, <laughs> um, that a habit emerged by other wedding goers who would literally swarm the bride and try to tear bits of her dress off of her body in hopes that some of her good fortune and good luck would transfer to them. Clearly, this was not a fun thing for a bride, and it probably led to a lot of unintended injuries. Uh, so some of the theories that I found uh, discussed the carrying and subsequent throwing of a bridal bouquet um, and wearing of garters was also born out of this desire to protect the bride. This often caused discomfort and invasion of privacy to the bride, since guests would typically stand around her and attempt to rip the gown off. Like, what? I mean, there were lots of reports of this, so I feel like this was a thing that happened. It wasn't just like the one reference in, you know, the 15th century book about this is life, about bathtubs. This was multiple sources talked about that people at weddings would literally try to rip things, including hair, off the freaking bride because they're like, I need to be lucky. I need to be married. Just like, sheesh. I mean, I'm surprised Edith didn't do it in Downton Abbey. <laughs> But really, um, she, she seemed the most down on her luck. And so if it wasn't the case, you know, maybe she was just too proper or too good for that uh, from her both of her sisters getting married. Anyway, so uh, in order to deter the guests, the bride began tossing the bouquet in the crowds to distract people and then made a break for it with her husband to the bridal chamber. Because also, apparently, back then, you could not wait between the ceremony and the reception to consummate the marriage. Like, I guess they were just so chaste and so ready to start their labor workforce that the second they were married legally in the eyes of, you know, the county god, you know, that they were like in the clear to get it on. And that just seems like such an interesting tradition when you think about going to weddings today that like, no, that, that time between the ceremony and reception is clearly labeled and used for taking pictures and remembering the day, not just like getting to it. The groom, uh, after they made it in there, would open the door and toss the garter out once the couple was inside. Again, another thing to quote, like I mentioned before, protect the bride, but just like keep them distracted because they want the good luck. They need to be married next. They need to grow their own love with possibly somebody under, you know, the kissing knot, or they need to uh, start their labor force because they got a trade, they've got their business plan made up, they just need the labor force to make it happen. <laughs> so people wanted, you know, all of these things just because they were married and that they wanted to be married. So they were thrilled to be given this opportunity to grab flowers since they too were also thought to have the symbolic meaning of being romantic and good luck for the future. And with flowers, much less detriment to the bride to, you know, 
be torn up and you know they could split split and spread and everybody gets the stem great over the years it seems though that the act of the distraction which like i was saying distract everybody while we can go hook up real quick and then we'll join the party question mark um <laughs> seems to have now been transitioned into a tradition meant for the bride to pass on her good fortune to just one single lady at the party Whoever catches the bouquet at the wedding is thought to be the next lady in line to be wed. So unlike medieval times, however, today the bride doesn't scamper away, but relishes in the moment for her ability to unknowingly choose who will follow in her footsteps next. While guests now respect the beauty of the bride and her gown as opposed to ripping it off of her. Uh, while obtaining the bouquet is meant to be bringing good luck to women, um, the garter offers the same tradition for men. Uh, and some forward-thinking brides uh, are including men in the bouquet toss and just foregoing the garter toss altogether. Now I want to bring into the conversation the idea of new traditions and new directions. Currently, the tossing of the bouquet is a tradition done at weddings where the bride tosses the bouquet that she carried during the ceremony at the reception to the single women that are in attendance at the wedding. The significance of catching it meant that you were the, quote, lucky one, quote, and the next to be married. Often, brides don't want to throw their actual bouquet because for a lot of them, they spend a lot of time picking out those flowers. The meaning, it's really, you know, another important detail of the day. They don't want to toss it. And sometimes once you have all those flowers and it's kind of the size you're looking for, it can also be heavy. And they also want to save and preserve it. Many florists will include or suggest a toss bouquet, so a posy-sized bouquet, for the bride to toss instead of her actual bouquet. So that way she can, in fact, save and preserve it um, or not chuck this, you know, 10-pound thing <laughs> um, at people. For my couples currently, just to give you guys an idea, um, I currently see it, it's about like a 50-50 thing where about half the weddings still do bouquet tosses and other half just kind of like forego it altogether. Garter tosses have become less and less of a thing, even more than bouquet tosses. I think more so just it's becoming more uncomfortable the act and process of removing it in front of family and friends. I've seen some strip teases happen <laughs> from the groom. Uh, very suggestive that maybe brides are not comfortable with displaying that part of their uh, life and affection towards each other in front of their parents or grandparents and uncles and cousins and close friends. So I've suggested, you know, if they still want the guy to do something doing a boutonniere toss um kind of similar concept uh, as a as a garter toss but just with the flowers same as the bride um so even or or even i've also suggested doing like a sports ball like a football or basketball where you can put the garter around but don't have to like retrieve it in such a showy fashion from the bride in the middle of the dance floor in front of everybody upper dress when I do have a bride that wants to do a bouquet toss, I highly discourage playing the song, Single Ladies. While being the music aficionado that I am, it is technically the perfect song because it implies that you will get a ring put on it and to also put your hands up, which just makes sense. When the bouquet is being tossed, you want to have your hands up and at the ready to catch it. But my problem is that it's just been so overplayed. If I hear it one more time at a wedding, I might actually rip off a ring finger. So as a PSA, I will happily share a list of alternative songs that you can play for your bouquet toss if you're gonna do it at your wedding. So here we go. Man, I feel like a woman, Shania Twain. Great. One of my faves, Let It Go from Frozen. And you have to time it 
perfectly to the point where in the chorus when she sings let it go for the first time it's when you let go of the bouquet and then you just have this glorious fabulous moment where you let it go and bam you can't be held back anymore aka the person who catches it to get to be the next in line to be married yay dear future husband by megan trainer's a good one only girl in the world by rihanna um and guys buckle in this is this list is a little exhaustive two other beyonce songs that are more than acceptable love on top and also formation formation as the lyrics build right in okay ladies now let's get in formation get in formation behind me let's go i'm gonna toss it lady marmalade by maya Payne, christina aguilera lil kim that's a fun one glamorous by fergie fun wannabe by the spice girls because i think this song is way too overplayed at wedding receptions in like the open dancing portion so i'd love some other songs to be played in the open dancing portion from spice girls like spice up your life or say you'll be there or stop because the choreography is so easy to do <laughs> never give up on the good times or if you want to even slow it down to become one Lots of other opportunities don't need to stick with just wannabe. I feel like, this is a little aside, that both radio and it seems like a lot of, you know, wedding playlists get these songs that, you know, people love from artists, but it, like funnels them down into one. So like, I hear from Britney Spears, it's just baby one more time. Like, great and all, but come on, there's so many, oops, I did it again, stronger, just so much, so much fun. So much more fun. Speaking of Britney Spears, Give Me More is a great song. <laughs> give me more luck. Give me more opportunity. Toss me the bouquet. Milkshake by Khalees. Bringing all the boys to the yard. Hollaback Girl. Gwen Stefani. Like a Virgin. Madonna. One Way or Another. Blondie. Girls Just Want to Have Fun. Cindy Lauper. It's Raining Men. The Weather Girls. I mean, that should be a great, like, segue into getting this luck, having that song playing, like, here comes the men. PYT, Michael Jackson. Hot Stuff or Last Dance by Donna Summer. Last Dance, Last Chance for Love. I mean, this is your last chance. If you don't grab this bouquet, it might be over. Uh, <laughs> um, Love Shack, B-52s. Um, How Will I Know, Whitney Houston. Stuck Like Glue, Sugarland, Thank You Next by Ariana Grande, but only the chorus because the rest is like moving on, moving on. But I guess kind of it works if you're like, okay, moving on from all the past things from this point forward. Thank you next to all of you. I know how my bouquet. I am ready to be married. Or Seven Rings because it's all about your girls and um, having a good time. Sexy Ladies by Superfruit. That's a fun one. Cut to the Feeling, Carly Rae Jepsen. You just want to cut to straight getting there. Grigio Girls by Lady Gaga, about having your girls with you, having a good time. Confident, Demi Lovato. I mean, what's wrong with being confident about like, I am ready for love, I'm looking for love, I want to find it. What's wrong with being confident? Worth It by Fifth Harmony, RIP. Because I'm worth it. Give it to me, I'm worth it. Lyrics, again, right in there. Don't ya, Pussycat Dolls. Don't you wish your girlfriend was hot like me? Yes, your girlfriend, your wife, hot like me. You want it. Come get it. I got the bouquet. Speaking of coming and getting it, come and get it. Selena Gomez translates the same message and no scrubs TLC. Because while you are looking for someone, he ain't got to be no scrub. And thank you for coming to my wed talk about songs for bouquet talks. <laughs>
Another option, kind of switching gears into alternatives, um, from uh, Martha Stewart is that Stewart suggests a, a new bouquet throwing tradition where you don't necessarily throw your bouquet, you keep it for yourself and you do a special quote, fortune bouquet for any of the unmarried guests. The fortune bouquet is actually composed of a dozen or so smaller mini bouquets that are bound together with a ribbon. However, before you throw it, you untie the ribbon so the mini bouquets can fly off in different directions and each bouquet can even have like a message that is attached to it with a romantic fortune written on it for the lucky recipient or it can just be like, hey, if you catch it, you get good luck. Easy peasy. I like that one. That's kind of fun. Um, another alternative that I've done, as opposed to tossing it, is doing something like an anniversary dance, where uh, if you're not familiar with an anniversary dance, it's where you invite all married couples onto the dance floor, and you know the DJ will call out you know, slowly, okay, if you've been married less than 24 hours, get off the dance floor. Clearly the bride and groom are the ones that are eliminated. And then you know, less than, or if you've been married less than a year, less than five years, you know, kind of goes up and up and up. Whoever is at the end typically will give like a tome of wisdom to the bride and groom about how they made it so long, you know, and then the bride and groom could gift the bouquet to them as, you know, the quote winners at the party. Or if you just don't like it, don't do it. I mean, if you want to do it, great, but there's no parameters or pressures on tradition these days. Um, a lot of weddings are kind of coming down to making it be as unique to the couple. If you don't like spotlight, you don't like the idea, the reasons behind it, if you feel pressured, if you got to do a bouquet toss, you got to do the guardhouse, just don't do it. I think, you know, it can, it can be whatever you want. You can come up with your own meeting. It can be, you know, if you catch it, you just get a year of good luck whatever whatever it is um you can even say hey you get a standing um reservation with us every year t for a dinner with the the couple you know it can come down to and mean whatever you want it to mean um or again you don't even have to do it you can just stick to having a lovely party with great food and great music and celebrating with your family and friends you don't need to have a stop the music moment um people People often like to use it as like a break in the dancing, you know, to halfway through the evening, you know, to let people go to the bathroom or get a drink uh, if they've been dancing it up on the dance floor. But if you don't want to do it, I say don't do it. You do you, boo-boo. And that is the history of what I think is the bouquet toss, why it happens. I, I think I, I love that it seems to be stemmed in Greek mythology of the tossing of the apple, of like who's the prettiest, who's the fairest of them all, but uh, kind of has translated over time to uh, protect the bride, and then later means you're, or I guess the protection by tossing it so people would rip that up for luck as opposed to the bride's dress, but then later it being diverted into just one person getting that honor at the wedding. So do it, don't do it, create your own tradition, um, celebrate how you want to celebrate, have fun, incorporate flowers however you want to. You don't have to listen to what history says. You don't even have to have flowers. I mean, I love me some flowers and I think they add a very great element to the day and will strongly encourage you to do so. But follow your heart. Listen to your, listen to your heart. Oh, that was terrible. <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of Wed Talk. I hope you feel very educated and have uh, taken away something from this. And as always, if you have any questions, feel free to email us at 
wedtalkpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to follow along uh, to updates and get notifications of new episodes, go on over to us at on Instagram at, you guessed it, wedtalkpodcast. And uh yeah mixing by me sorry about it uh logo and music by aaron Gaines. uh thank you so much again for joining us i hope uh, i brought some a couple laughs some joy education to your day i hope you are staying safe staying sane out there washing your hands isolating doing all the things safely reopening your life if that's what's on your plate and uh yeah i think that's it I also have a terrible time at ever ending these. I don't really know when. I'll I'll circle back and I'll say something again and be like, oh my gosh, I just saw that. Stay safe, be good, and we'll catch you next time here on my talk. Bye.